You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God in heaven, we come to you praying that you would speak to us even now by your word, that we would learn uh, from your word and uh, see uh, this book of Exodus as your picture book of not just the redemption of the people of Israel, but our redemption, redemption that has been bought for us by the blood of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Exodus 13 and 14. Last week we talked about uh, the Passover, and you'll remember that we uh, laid a special emphasis on the instructions that God gave uh, the people of Israel. Uh, we talked about how uh, it really wasn't a, a political or a nationalistic idea of salvation because anybody who would place themselves under the cover of the blood in a home of someone who put their trust in the blood, uh, they would be saved as much as the Israelite would be. Uh, but we laid special emphasis upon the lamb. And if you remember that the lamb had to meet God's requirements, that it would be a lamb without blemish, uh, we said that the lamb was able uh, to, um, to meet the requirements of the people as well, uh, that, uh, that it was sufficient. And then we uh, talked about the blood of the lamb uh, being um, efficacious in bringing about salvation in the life of those who place themselves under it. And then uh, finally, we talked about Jesus himself being uh, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. And so today we turn to Exodus 13 and 14 uh, after the Passover where Pharaoh has said, just go, just go. And you get to take all of your livestock and uh, your people and your money. Uh, all of that is yours. Just get out. And uh, the, the issue that we see now is that this is not just a small remnant. Remember what began with Joseph and his brothers now number 600,000 men plus women and children. And we're talking about a million people plus. That's really what we're probably looking at. And, uh, and so that's, um, I mean, have y'all ever gone on a, you know, it was very funny. I was coming out of church one time in Beaufort, South Carolina, and, and Lauren and I had gone out of town with the girls. And they said, well, how was your time away? And I said, oh, it was a great vacation. He goes, did you take the kids? I said, yes, sir. And he said, that's called a family trip. Uh, this is a family trip, right? This, is, this, is, uh, this has got a lot more baggage to it and a lot of more complicated pieces. And, um, and it's, it's like driving across Texas. You know, you see the sign that says, welcome to Texas, and you say, yay! And little do you know that it'll take a week and a half for you to get across Texas, right? So the front end of the caravan is going to get to where you're supposed to be going, and you've still got almost a million people behind you that are still catching up. So this is a big operation, and not just that, it's not just Moses being a spiritual leader, but a leader of a people. And we're going to get into that as to why the laws were established for what they were, because even with a million of God's chosen people, um, in the words of uh, one of our founding fathers, if men were angels, they wouldn't need to be governed. Right? So, and we'll see that writ large of human nature when we get uh, a little bit farther, uh, further along into the wilderness. Uh, but at this point, they're just making their way out into uh, the wilderness. 
and uh, instituted is uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Consecration of the Firstborn. And this is one of those that would be very easy for us to skip over. But I really want us to see what God is doing in this festival and why it is that he wants the firstborn of uh, livestock and of human beings uh, consecrated to him. So uh, let's, uh, let's read a little bit of chapter 13 uh, now. So the unleavened bread, we understand what that is. That's the whole idea. Um, uh, um, verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. That's going to be a constant refrain. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, meaning, remember they had to get out quickly. Right? You, you don't have time. Uh, how many of y'all started baking bread during, how many of y'all stole all the yeast from America uh, when, uh, during, Leland Hall, I knew you would. Uh, so, uh, uh, bed break, bread baking became such a big thing during quarantine uh, and all the yeast in America was gone. And so, um, and you know what actually solved that issue? What actually brought that to a halt? It was, it was the brewers in America saying that there may be a beer shortage. And all of a sudden that curbed people's behavior. That's true. Um, uh, but when you're making bread, if you've ever made bread, um, you add yeast to it. And, and how long do you have to let this thing sit, this lump? Yeah, a lot, sometimes overnight, depending on what kind of bread you're making. So there's quick, they didn't have quick yeast back then. Uh, but um, uh, it, it takes a while. And so the idea is that you don't put yeast in the bread because you don't have time for all that. And, and that the bread is for, for sustenance. This is not artisanal sourdough, right? This is, this is, you're on the move. And when they dress for the Passover, how did they dress? For traveling, they put their travel clothes on. That a st uh, he said, eat with a staff in your hand. Eat with a staff in your hand, because when I give the word, it's time for you to go. And so in verse 11, the Lord says, uh, Moses says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Now by that, redeeming sacrifice, right? That redemption, right? This is what, so uh, you redeem this firstborn by taking, by sacrificing a lamb is what he's saying. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons shall you shall redeem. And when in time... To come your, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, what does this mean? On the face of it, why is God asking for the firstborn of all the animals 
and all of the males to be dedicated to him. Remembrance, Remembrance right? This is, and, and the, don't, I mean, this is what we do. That's a good point, David, that, that ought to be made. Uh, when we do rituals or things in the church, they're meant to remember. There's one in particular that is intentionally to invoke your memory. What is that that we do? Right, do this in remembrance, right? So when we come to the table, we remember. Don. I think there's a little clue there. It says that you read it in verse 9. Uh, be assigned to your hand. Mm-hmm. A, a memorial is between your eyes. You know, the hand is what you do. The, the forehead is what you think. So you can remember with your mouth. And he says it again at the end as well. So I think the, the memory part of it is really, really important. Yeah, so the memory, Don's bringing, I'm just repeating this for the people, not being patronizing, I hope. Don is saying that the memory part is really important and that in these acts, the more than one sense is engaged, right? So it's, uh, it, it really tries to engage uh, the whole person. Uh, but even here, God is saying that this could become an empty act, couldn't it? You could just, now I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of y'all have just done sort of drive-by communion? Where you just sort of go through the motions, you get caught up in the moment, but actually don't stop and think what's happening and what is it that I'm remembering? What's happening here? We, it's, all, it's all happened to us. It's all happened to us. So for instance, you know, and there are times where I'll admit it, I'll get up there and I'm so used to doing the communion service uh, that I'll be kind of going along in the communion service and I'll, um, I'll be saying the words and all of y'all are listening and, and, I'll, and I'll start thinking about my grocery list. And I can kind of do both at the same time, which is completely ridiculous. Um, so there's, there's an element uh, of being forgetful, even if you go through the ritual. And so what does God say? Words are important. What does this mean? And this is what you're to tell your children. So these are signs and remembrances of God's redemption. In the same way the church today has that in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We remember our redemption. So even though you may feel like you're not participating as much in, uh, in baptism, uh, that's to remind you that you have been crucified with Christ. And yet you live. So when you watch this child or even an adult being baptized, it's to remind you. And uh, I often, at the end of a baptism of a child, when we have all the little ones sitting down front, uh, I'll often take water and throw it on them and say, remember your baptism. And I'm not doing it because it's cute uh, or to be flippant. I'm being very, I'm I'm doing what we're being told here uh, in God's word. Because the kids may not be our ticket, but I know they're thinking, why do we do this? Why do we do this? And I know that most of the words are lost on them, but I want them to remember their baptism. And I know that one day they're going to be growing, growing up and they'll say, you know, we had this pastor one time that did this crazy thing and he'd throw water at us and tell us to remember our baptism. Uh, but you know what? Maybe that'll click one day, you know. And it made me think, what does it mean to remember my baptism? So that's what the Lord is saying uh, to Moses here. But there's another point to be made. One is, uh, uh, is that... Um, that God's people are called to be different. That's going to be a significant point all the way, well, through the history of Israel. God's people are going to be different. So when we get to the laws, you know, we'll look at some of these laws and think, golly, that's, that's, that's arbitrary. Why would God ask the people to do that? And the answer is because God said so. And often those are the laws that would differentiate the people of Israel 
from those around them. And it would feel weird because everyone else around them would say, what's the big deal? Why won't you wear a, a cotton wool blend shirt? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is the Lord said not to do it, and that's enough for me. That was the answer, because God said so, and we're called to be different. What's that? They're set apart, right? That's the whole idea here of being set apart. And so I don't want this to be lost either. So if you look at um, verse 14 in chapter 13, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You see what the Lord is saying through Moses here to the people of Israel? This is a question that ought to be provoked in the minds and mouths of all of our children. Because what God is saying here is that there's going to come a day when the child is going to say, your kid's going to say, Daddy, Mama, why are we like this? Why are we different? Why do we, uh, why do we prioritize this? Why do we do this when everybody else is doing that? That's what's happening here. The child is asking not just what does it mean because they're seeking explanation. They're also saying, why, do, why are we different? What does this mean? And so, you know, when I read this and went over it last week, I'm sitting there think, pretty convicted thinking, you know, do my kids see any difference in our house? What does it mean when we say, for, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Or does my life conform to everyone else around me and I just happen to be a Christian? Being a Christian means called out. And one of the points that God is making here in Exodus 13 is that redemption always leads to pilgrimage. You ever notice that in the Bible? Redemption always leads to pilgrimage. In every case, even in the New Testament, when Jesus is there preaching in the boat and, and Simon Peter and all the guys are, are hanging around and uh, Jesus says what? Come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what happened? They left their nets. Now, all of Jesus' disciples left their former way of life and, and went on pilgrimage, even if it meant uh, no place to lay your head, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, it, a real pilgrimage. And so for us, that, that has to be true too. Now, it may not manifest it in the same way, uh, but you ought to feel like you are on a journey and that differentiation has happened in your life. And doesn't it feel like in the Christian life that you're in the wilderness? Doesn't it feel like you're on pilgrimage? God, when are you going to bring me to this? When are you going to bring me to the promised land? And look, I, 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 there's no record that the Israelites necessarily rejoiced in their difference between themselves and the other tribes and nations around them because they probably said what I would say, you know, Lord, I wish we didn't have to worry about this. And I wish that we could just kind of go along to get along. But the children ought to be able to ask, Mama, Daddy, why are we different? Why are we different? And for us with joy, not, uh, not um, you know, I, well, son, I'd like for us to play uh baseball on Sunday mornings, but we got to go to church. Like, that's not a good answer. Uh, and I've shared with you that I, I caught myself. You know why pastor's kids grow up so bad? Um, I can tell you. Um, one of the reasons is that oftentimes within the house, when the pastor comes home, 
conversations around the church tend to be in the negative. Don't we complain about our own jobs? Like this is what happened at work today. But the difference is, is your kids aren't emotionally and spiritually entwined in, in your jobs. Like they're not going to the bank with you um, all the time. Uh, their relationships aren't with your, your employees or your coworkers. That, that, that's not how it works, but it's different in the church. And so pastors have to be really careful how they speak of the church, especially when little ears are listening and especially when they speak to their spouse. But uh, one of the things I caught myself doing is I would say things like, um, girls, we've got to get the house together tonight uh, because there are people coming over for a Bible study. I'm sorry we have to do it, but we've got to do it. Or, um, daddy, are, are you, uh, are you going to come to my volleyball game tonight? I wish I could come to your volleyball game, but I've got something to do, uh, for the church, you know, being at the grocery store, daddy, can we have this in the line and all those things? Can we have this? Can we buy that? No, honey, you know, we, we don't have the money. And in fact, we, we want to use our money wisely. And, and so we don't buy that kind of stuff. We, we give to the church and we support missionaries and other missions, mission ministries uh, in our own lives. And, um, you know, when I phrase it that way, it would be no wonder that my children would grow up and resent Christianity. Because Christianity, would, this is a lie that gets in our heads that the devil preaches, is that God's law robs you of joy in real life. That to be walking with the Lord means unnecessary sacrifice that ultimately leads to pain and suffering. Now, by that, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of way that we talk about Christianity, of course it is uh, about sacrifice, and we are called to suffer. Uh, we heard that this morning in John's Gospel reading. But, but how do we speak of the Christian life? And so I began to realize that I needed, uh, not as a psychological trick, but to speak to my children in a way that said, y'all, we got to clean up the house tonight because isn't it wonderful that God's people are coming over to our house tonight, our brothers and sisters, in order to engage in his word. What a beautiful thing. What a privilege to have our brothers and sisters come over to the house. Uh, I'm sorry that, you know, yeah, I, I wish that we could buy all this junk that you want us to buy at the grocery store. Uh, but you know what? We give that money to missionaries and you don't know, but one day you're going to get to heaven. And someone's going to walk up to you and say, I don't know you. Uh, and you don't know me. But you used to give money to a missionary that came to my village and told me about Jesus. And so I'm here in part because of you. Totally different, isn't it? Why are we like this? Why do we do this? Because our eyes are set on the promised land. They're set on glory. They're set on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's different. And so our lives ought to provoke questions from our children uh, like this. So that's why they're doing this. But uh, if you want to, Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 at the very end in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, let me just say as a, as a footnote, Jesus is not or Paul is not saying here that God says you got to go to the gym every day. That's not what it means that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not what, what is being said here. 
but what he's saying is that you have been bought with a price, which is the whole point of dedicating the firstborn. Do you understand that you have been bought with a price? You're not your own. You belong to Jesus. He is yours and you are his. And so God is saying here the same thing that Paul is saying, but a long, long time before it in Exodus 13, that you were bought with a price. And so that's the reminder. As you go out into the wilderness, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. But then we hear in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, if you've got a little map in the back of your Bibles, you can see this because it actually shouldn't take all that long to get from Egypt up to what is the promised land. And so you take a left. And uh, so modern day uh, Gaza, you know, we see that in the news all the time. That's where the Philistines lived. That's where they lived. And it's right along uh, what was an important ancient coastal highway there along the Mediterranean. But instead of going that way, they took a hard right and, and headed down into the Sinai Peninsula. And God knows his people. So why is it that instead of taking, really, the front end of the caravan could have probably gotten there in a week if they walked pretty hard every day. So why did God take them into the promised land over a 40-year period? Right. He knows his people. It would take 40 years to rest away from them what we're going to see, which is, did they not have enough graves in Egypt? And this constant longing to go back into Egypt so that by, David Tanner's answered this question every single time I've asked it. By the time they get to Jericho and cross the river, uh, if you're from Auburn, Jordan, how many people had any recollection of Egypt amongst the now, I mean, who knows, two million, three, four, five million, two that's right, Joshua and Caleb. The only two, no one else could remember the cucumbers. No one else could remember the meat pots. It's a remarkable thing. And it shows you the great lengths that God will go to to conform his people into his image. I'll leave you in the wilderness for 40 years to get this out of you. Because ultimately, my ultimate plan of salvation in the Lord Jesus is going to be through you. And so just to take you straight up to Egypt could foil the whole thing. Because one, we see that they're fearful because they're going to the... What do we know about the Philistines? Think David and Goliath. They're big. They're, big. they're like the Germans, the Prussians to be exact. They're a warring people. And so they know that... Um, and they've been in slavery. They, they're not a trained army. There are lots of them. But, but I'll tell you, that that's the downfall because there are so many of them. If they were to roll up and just say to the Philistines, hey, we're just passing through. No, that's a threat. There's an entire nation moving through. They're like locusts. So, so God takes them where no one else, where no one else is, uh, down into the Sinai. And he led his people uh, round uh, the, by the way of wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Kind of. Moses took the bone. Now, this is interesting. This is just another footnote. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones with you from here. And so even back in the day, when, because when we get to Moses, uh, what does Exodus tell us about Pharaoh? That he did not remember Joseph. Finally, the, he, that, that lineage had gotten to the point where they didn't remember Joseph, and that's when the Israelites were enslaved. And we remember that God used Joseph to save Egypt and was, at a, was politically uh, the prime minister of all of Egypt uh, and saved them from famine. And of course, as a collateral and great benefit and ultimately part of God's plan was to save the nation of Israel as well, even though it was only his brothers uh, and, and their families that came uh, to, uh, to Egypt. But they took Joseph's bones out in order that he might be, uh, and that he might be buried uh, away from um, Egypt. No, they're back there somewhere. Yeah, they're back there somewhere. You know, um, I, I'm not into, um, you know, you can go all over the Holy Land um, and there's, there's a tomb to somebody. And it's just sort of like, you know, how many times they divide up Moses? There's tombs for him everywhere. Um, or, or even if you go into Europe, there are like four or five heads of John the Baptist, right, that are, that are rolling around. Uh, but, um, but I think that, you know, for them, they didn't forget Joseph. I think that was really the point and, uh, and gave them a sense of purpose and reminded them of what, of what we're taking you home. All these years and years and years and years and years later, we're, we're taking you back to where you should have been in the first place if it weren't for your disobedient brothers who actually are still, their bodies are still back in Egypt, but we're taking you back where you belong. So there, there's almost a little bit of justice to it, maybe. In my sinful heart, I think that. Yeah. So as they're sojourning along, they've been told that the Lord is with them, but look at how God graciously deals with his people in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. And man, can you imagine? Turn around, everybody. We're going back this way. Ah, poor Moses. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and camp uh, in front of the sea by facing it. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Meaning our entire labor force is gone. What in the world were we thinking? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Now, whose heart is hardened here? Pharaoh's. But it didn't take much convincing for the other Egyptians, did it? And that is a very scary warning that it's easy to be led astray by a leader with a hardened heart. Because it, it feels like, you know, 
logically, this sounds like a really good idea. We should go and get them back. And when you have your leader affirming what you're desiring in your heart, that's a dangerous thing. I mean, sometimes that does happen. Like I, I think that we should reinstitute breakfast here at the Advent when we're able to. Who would agree with that? That's a great idea. All right, I, I miss it. That, my heart is not hardened <laughs> and is pushing me toward breakfast. Uh, but there are any number of things, I, I think, uh, and I've seen this happen in the life of, of churches before, uh, where uh, it's easy to get uh, off, off track uh, because of the hardening uh, of a leader's uh, heart. And, uh, and no one was even willing to check Pharaoh and say, remember all those plagues and remember how we lost our kids and I don't know that you want to mess with all this. Like, I hear what you're saying economically, but this is a short-term loss for a long-term gain for our country. But the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea where they were encamped. I'm not going to do all the words. When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And now you're seeing the difference in leadership, aren't you? Because the Israelites are no different than the Egyptians. Except what does Moses do? He confronts the flow of their hearts. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Man, that's a verse that we ought to put up in our bathrooms. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, that's not the case every time, but it's a good word here. But notice the Lord says to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen." Now, God says, why do you cry to me? But the Israelites were complaining to who? Moses. So why does God say, why do you complain to me? All the complaints go to the top. Isn't that true? So even when I'm complaining to Lauren and saying things like, you know, why do we have to do this? Why can't we just catch a break? And why can't we just have a weekend when we don't have anything to do? Who am I actually complaining to? God. Aren't I? Because what I'm saying is, I ought to be able to have life the way I want it. And so when y'all come complain to me, just know who you're really complaining to. <laughs> I'm serious. Because I'm in the same boat. Um, and, and that's why uh, it, you get that great line in the book of Job. What's this, when, she, when Job is, uh, is suffering and complaining, what does his wife say? 
why don't you just curse God and die? Right? That, that's, that's really the response. But at the same time, God meets his people where they are, right? He speaks a word into their, because it's not just Moses saying, see the Lord. Then God speaks to his people. He understands their fear. And in spite of the fact that they, they're a great, you know, multitude. And, and it says here that they've been uh, trained like an army. There's, this is pandemonium because it's Pharaoh's army. And then what's, what's in front of them? See, they're stuck. They're hemmed in. They're lost in the wilderness. But watch this. Verse 19 in chapter 14. Now, by day, what has been leading the people of Israel? What is God's presence amongst them? A pillar of cloud, and at night, a pillar of fire. Right. So there's, there's not just God's word spoken through Moses. There's also a, a, a visible reminder of God's presence amongst them. And, um, and that's really where God is pushing his people. It's not just to understand that they've been forgiven and that they've been saved by him by the blood of the lamb. It's about being in his presence. It's about being his people. It's about knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. There was a church in Beaufort, uh, a Pentecostal church, and their logo on their sign was a passion for the presence. And I used to think that was stupid. And, um, and think, because it, made, because it made it sound as if when they came to church on Sunday, they were trying to manufacture something. They were trying to sort of create an environment where you would, you would feel something and you'd have an experience. And ha- I mean, we've had those in church before, haven't we? Or, or at some event or a weekend retreat. Uh, but the thing about it is, is that, can you replicate that? Not really, because why? If God shows up, who determines that? God shows up. So I'm sure that it was a remarkable experience, but one of the most significant spiritual experiences where I really felt the presence of God was at a meeting of a primitive Baptist church where they sang music unaccompanied. Like it was as plain and as simple, you know, they might as well have on their church sign says, don't look for the presence, right? And yet they don't, they wouldn't believe that because God was there. It was a really powerful moment uh, for me to see that, that God, God is not domesticated, Right? You can't corral him and say, now, God, it's your turn to come in here. It's, it's your turn. Uh, but, but God shows up uh, typically uh, to meet the needs of his people, uh, but above all, uh, in faithfulness to his people, uh, but also uh, while we seek his face. You know, and so a little, a little, another little footnote. Here's a little thing. If you feel like God is far away, just stop. And what I do is I sing. I, I, I try to worship. I mean, our whole lives are worship, but in that particular kind of way, um, I worship. You want to hear God speak aloud to you? Read the Bible out loud. You'll hear his voice. So there really is something about our lives, just like the Israelites, that the ultimate goal, at least here in our earthly pilgrimage, is to know that we're in the presence of God and that he's a friend of sinners. That the living God is your friend and he's near you. He's not far away. 
and he's mighty to save. And so when he's the pillar of cloud by day, when they get to the Red Sea, what happens with this pillar? It moves. So all of a sudden, God's presence goes from leading them, because like this is, this is early GPS, you know, there's a pillar of cloud, we should follow it. It goes from following, leading them to standing between them and Pharaoh's armies. Pharaoh's armies versus the Israelites, that's a problem. The Pharaoh's armies against the living God, it's a rout. It's a rout every time. So just think about that. Um, you know, we are called to put on the armor of God, although if you look at that passage in Ephesians, it has more about putting on, it's about putting on Jesus, is what the, hiding ourselves in him than it is kind of marching off into battle. Uh, but there are times where we do have to gird ourselves up and, and face Goliath. Uh, but even then, the battle belongs to the Lord and we go in his strength. So the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of men moved and went, went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand uh, over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, uh, this amazing miracle, um, I think was ten, I, I think I would have mixed feelings about this uh, because we're told that the sea is parted and it's like a wall on either side, which means you're walking on dry land, but to the left and to the right, you can see the action in the Red Sea. Now, what is probably lost on most of us is that the Red Sea is infested with deadly sharks, even to this day. Uh, I've shared with you, there's a recollection from the Royal Navy back when, during the Napoleonic Wars, where, um, there was a ship in the Red Sea and, uh, of His Britannic Majesty's Navy, and uh, someone who was on board the ship, they had free time, and he dove into the Red Sea, and they said before his full body went under the water, it was completely awash with blood. Just the sharks were there right on top. So as you're walking through the Red Sea, what are you seeing? Right, it's sort of like, Lord and feet don't fail me now. Right. And, and then especially because it, it seems as if what's happening 
is as they're walking through, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon all that they bring along with them. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so there's almost a picture, I think that it can be read this way, that the Israelites aren't all the way through while the sea is caving in behind them. A, a, a really frightening thing, but, but see how detailed the Lord is and how his hand can stay. You know, it's not as if the, like, I can kind of part the Red Sea while you're walking through, but I can't sort of cut part of it off and keep part of it going. It's, there's nothing that's beyond his reach. His arm isn't too short to save. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Pretty effective. Give it a couple days, and we'll talk about how they go right back to where they are. Um, so isn't that the truth? The Lord does something great and gracious in our life, and then, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you get a speeding ticket, and you drive really safely for about a month, and then it's pedal to the metal, baby. All right, questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Yes. Think about it. They're actually part the sea. How long would it take for that land to get to right. not be muddy? And the next verse it says that their wheels were stopped up. Right. It's that it's that kind of perfect provision. Right. Yeah, I mean I mean I, I know people um who've experienced this and um and and if any of us roll our eyes, uh, shame on us. Uh but but people who have been hard up for money and have called upon the Lord and a check arriving in the mail for the exact amount. I mean, the God who clogs the wheels of the chariots and lets his people go on dry land, surely he can provide $782.15 to the penny. I mean, do we, I mean, it's one thing to believe it, but do we live it that way? And that's where, the, that's where the Israelites, all they have is God. And that's what leads to their complaining. They're looking for a little bit of self-sufficiency. Catherine. I would read it as he is drowned. Uh, simply because it says that there were, um, um, where is it? That, um, yeah, that that's a good point. Um, well, he generally leads the forces. He rides. Yeah, he's um, he's in the midst of them. So I, I would say that Pharaoh drowned there as as well. Uh, and there's also the thing uh, that that you will never see Pharaoh's face again. And I think it would be pretty safe to say that if 
Pharaoh had lived, this is just patterns of behavior, this would not be the last time they'd see Pharaoh, that, that he would have continued to pursue them. Um, but, but now, of course, there's no one left to pursue them, whether that's a leader or whether that's an army. But that's a really good question. And that, that's really how we ought to read the Bible. Those are the important questions of, you know, what, is it, what does it actually say? I mean, I think that sometimes we make assumptions about what the Bible is saying without really stopping and thinking, um, you know, I'm going to have to piece some things together here. Yeah, good question. Well, there might be some flocks back in Midian that no longer have a shepherd. Uh, so there, there might be a job opening there. Yeah. Yes. Do they I mean, archaeological evidence would, would sort of would suggest that. There's no archaeological evidence, though, that links... Um, like that we've not found any style or, or writings that say Moses was in, in Egypt. So there's no connection. We've not um, archaeologically. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that, that there wasn't one. Um, but, um, uh, and, and of course, even the existence of people like Joseph. Um, so I, that's, that's sort of a best guess. Uh, there are a couple Ramses, but um, but yeah, um, the Red Sea didn't look that bad, I guess. Uh, if you have to go back to a hundred kids, but um, family trip, a family trip. Um, but um, um, that that idea is based more on kind of doing the math in your head about when the Exodus would have would have taken place, and that's about when. But, I mean, what inevitably happens in biblical archaeology, and we've had this happen recently, um, is that something that someone says, there's no, as an argument against it happening, and then all of a sudden something turns up that has the names on it saying that on this, you know, da 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 uh, pretty remark. In fact, uh, did y'all read last week, more Dead Sea Scrolls were found? Um, and, and one of the most extensive scrolls that was found way back in the day uh, in the latter part of the 19th century that was deemed a fake, they're now believing was possibly real. That, that, that's, so there was a New York Times article on that, that that it seems like it was more of a personality conflict between two archaeological guys rather than... Um, yeah. So, um, But the thing about it was is because it was considered a fake, it's, it's been lost to history. It's been lost. So the, there are drawings of it. There are drawings of it when it was found. But um, so, and, and of course, that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. So when I read stuff like that, that they found, uh, you know, something in Syria that talked about the Israelites being there, I think, oh, well, that's, that's great, but I already knew that, <laughs> right? This is, this is old news. Uh, this, we've known this for thousands of years. Um, but it's, it's, it, it's maybe helpful for some skeptics uh, to see that, see that reaffirmed. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, that we uh, would long for your presence, that we would know that we are in it, and that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us, for you've bought us with a price, and you've certainly not brought us this far just to leave us. And so, Lord, we pray 
that we would not rely on ourselves, but we would see uh, that you are mighty to save and that with a strong hand, uh, you have brought us out of the bondage of sin and death uh, into new life by and through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, that we might hide ourselves in him and uh, know who we are. And Lord, that you would transform our lives in such a way that our children would ask, why are we like this? What makes the difference? And Lord, that we would be able to say without hesitation, Jesus makes all the difference. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.